You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. And finally, after the incident of the woman caught in the act of adultery, Jesus spoke these words in the treasury of the temple, and it says, no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. So there's a theme of time running through the gospel. Jesus was indeed on a timeline, but it was a divine timeline. It was God's There is a constant mention of a timeline all throughout the Bible. This timeline isn't one that's determined by you or any other person, but it's a sovereign God-ordained timeline. Today, Pastor Dave will be explaining how you can make all the plans you want, but God is ultimately in control of it all. Now, here's Pastor Dave in the book of John chapter 13 as he begins his message, To God Be the Glory. So in the Gospel of John, there have been many threads winding through. And one of the many threads that seem to be winding through this Gospel is the thread of time. Let me explain. Throughout our study, it appears that according to John, Jesus was on a timeline. In other words, there was a time that he was going towards. Six times in this great Gospel, John records Jesus saying that a time is coming. But then he turns around and says, but not yet. John uses words like the next day, a week later, days later. It continues to indicate to us that Jesus was on a timeline. And that being on this timeline and be able to keep this precise timing of God, he had to know all things. In other words, Jesus had to know all things in the past, all things in the present, And he had to know the eventual impact of all things on the future, namely his death on a cross. By reading the book of John, we see that Jesus was committed to the task he was called to do. And that there would come a time when this task would come to pass. There would come a time when this task would be before him. Let me refresh your memory on some of these scriptures that John was indicating this timeline. Way back in John 2, verse 4, at the marriage feast of Cana, Jesus says to his mother, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. John 4, 21, with the woman at the well, Jesus said, Women, believe me, an hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. In John 7, verse 8, Jesus told his brothers, you go up to the feast. I am not yet going, for my time has not yet fully come. After he spoke in the temple during the feast, in John 7.30, therefore they sought to take him. No, no, No one laid a hand on him because his hour hadn't yet come. And again, when he's talking to the Pharisees at the feast in 7.33, 
I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. And finally, after the incident of the woman caught in the act of adultery, Jesus spoke these words in the treasury of the temple, and it says, no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. So there's a theme of time running through the gospel. Jesus was indeed on a timeline, but it was a divine timeline. It was God's timeline. As we start at chapter 13, we saw Jesus and his disciples assembling together for what would be called the Last Supper. And after supper, we saw this great example of Jesus' humility, which was motivated by his love, as he gets up and he washes the disciples' feet. Here the sovereign Lord became the sovereign servant. The sovereign Lord gives us this beautiful demonstration and example of servanthood, motivated by love for the Father, a true example of humility that can only come from a very close relationship with the Father. In the upper room that night, Jesus served his disciples. John records, he loved them to the utmost, or he loved them to the end. What does that mean? It means he loved them with everything he was capable of. He loved them with everything he had. He gave everything to his disciples. But something was amiss. There was a traitor among them. A traitor among them. And Jesus knew it because he knew all things. He knew it was in the heart of men. He told the disciples that one of you will betray me. And they all went into a tizzy going, is it I? Is it I? Is it me? They all wondered if they were the ones who were going to betray him. But Jesus pointed out the betrayer to John himself when he dipped the bread into the sop. The sop is basically probably some hummus mix. He dipped the bread into the sop and he passed it to a man. The man's name was Judas Iscariot. When Jesus gave Judas the sop, when he handed him the sop, it was an act of friendship. It was an act of love. It was an act of honor. It was an act of dedication. I believe this was Judas's last opportunity. This was his last opportunity. This was the moment that the die was cast, so to speak. It was then that the decision was formed. It was then that Judas's heart was hardened and he had to betray the Lord. It was then that Satan entered him. Then he went out and John says, it was at night. Look at verse 30. Having received the piece of bread, he, he being Judas, then went out immediately and it was night. What's interesting here is the rest of the disciples didn't even realize that Judas was the betrayer, even though he stood up and left the meeting. As we come to our verses this morning, now that Judas has left the room, everything changes. Everything changes. Jesus now turns his attentions to his disciples. And look what he says in verse 31. In verse 31, it says, So when he had gone out, now that's Judas, Jesus said, Now. Now. The instant Judas leaves the room, the atmosphere changes. The atmosphere becomes totally different. Jesus is now going to get more intimate with his disciples. 
In the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it was after Judas leaves that Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper when he talks about the new covenant in his blood. So what is Jesus doing? He's now going to prepare his disciples for the crucifixion, the resurrection, and his ultimate return to the Father in heaven. So Jesus said, now. Now is the time. The time is now. The final stage is set. The time upon which I came to earth. This is the reason I came. Now is the time. The hour had finally come. But it seemed to be an hour of darkness. Hence, it says that Judas left at night. Judas wanted to do his deed in the dark. He wanted to do his dirty deed in the dark at night. It seemed to be a dark hour. There may have never been a darker hour in the history of mankind. It would seem that this day was a triumph for the forces of evil, for the forces of darkness. It would appear that this was the day that had finally come where the forces of evil had won over on God. From a human perspective, this hour, the hour of Christ's death, was a most dastardly hour. It involved unspeakable suffering and humiliation. The light of the world had come into the world, and it seemed as though the world was now going to extinguish the light. It looked that way. Everything was pointing to it. From a human perspective, this was indeed dastardly. But from a divine perspective, it was a revelation of God's glory. Look at verse 31. Let's read it all. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. In these short verses this morning, Jesus references glory five times. He references the word glory five times. The Son of Man will be glorified, and God would be glorified in him. Glorified. <clears throat> the Greek word here is doxadzo, meaning glorious, full of glory. The word is the past tense of the verb to glory. What does that mean? It means to exalt, to honor, to praise extravagantly. That's what glorifying means. How would the Son of Man be glorified? How is it that the Son of Man is going to be glorified at this hour? How would God be glorified in him? Simple. By Jesus' death on the cross. As mind-boggling as it may seem to us in our human brains, Jesus' death on the cross would be his glorification and would be to the glory of God. Jesus had spoken about this in John 12, 23. In John 12, 23, Jesus said, answered them saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And he talked about the wheat going into the ground, the kernel of wheat going into the ground and blossoming. He was speaking of his death. He was speaking about his death. The Son of Man will be glorified and God would be glorified. How? By two pieces of wood and three nails. Two pieces of wood and three nails would be to the glorification of God. The cross is a place of glory. The world looks at the cross and they see disgust. They see humiliation. They see disgrace. They see a place of cursing. Jesus looks at the cross and knowing what it will be accomplished on the cross, sees glory. The cross is at the heart of Jesus. 
The cross is at the very heart of God. The cross would reveal love in a way that has never been revealed before. The cross would reveal the true love of God that God had for mankind. The cross is so important to us that the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 6.14, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So my question, why should we then glory in the cross? The cross is a killing machine. The cross might as well be an electric chair, a gas chamber, a place of death. The cross is a place where criminals went to die. And it was a horrible, disgusting death, a vicious death, a brutal death. Why should then we glory in a cross? Well, first of all, the cross speaks of the extent of God's love. The cross speaks to us about the extent of God's love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Greater is no man than this that he lay down his life for his friends. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. But God has manifested his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. On the cross we see God's love. We view God's love. We see the perspective of how much God really loves you individually. Take it personally, folks. Just how much God loves each and every one of you and each and every one of the entire world for God so loved the world. We get a picture of that. Secondly, the cross tells me of the extent that God will go to bless me and help me. God loved me so much that he would go to such an extent so that I could have a relationship with him. He loves me so much that he would go such an extent that he would allow his own beloved son, his only begotten son, to die in my stead. Scripture says, if God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not freely then give us all things? Whatever I may need pales into significance when compared to what God has already given me through Jesus Christ and the cross. No wonder Paul said, but I, God shall supply all my needs and riches through Christ Jesus. It is on the cross where Jesus conquered the forces of darkness that were opposed to your walking in fellowship with God. The forces of darkness were opposed and are still opposed to your walking with fellowship in God. But those chains of slavery, those chains were broken on the cross. What did you just sing? We have been set free. We have been set free by what happened on the cross. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I now have a choice. I don't have to sin. Before I didn't have a choice. It was my nature. And I had to sin. So on the cross, I have victory. Paul wrote concerning the cross, by it, the cross, he, Jesus, conquered those principalities and powers that were against us as he triumphed over them through the cross and made an open display of his victory. Number four, the cross removes the sting of death. Paul cried, oh, death, where is your sting? 
O grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be unto God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Fifthly, the cross gives me hope. And it gives me promise of eternal life. Jesus said to the disciples right after he was telling them that the hour had come for his crucifixion, he's going to say, because I live, you too shall live. Paul writes, for if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he that raised Jesus from the dead will also make you alive in your mortal body by his spirit that dwells in you. Peter says, thank God for we have been born again into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Folks, it's plain and simple. If there had been no cross, if there had been no death, there would have been no victorious resurrection. Simple. Period. So I glory in the cross of Jesus Christ. It's not some ornament I wear about my neck. It's, not, it's, it's mean powerful to me. And when I look at it, something happens within me. Something happens inside me. When Jesus said, if I be lifted up, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. What was he talking about? Well, we lift up the name of Jesus. That's great. But he was talking about a cross. If I be lifted up on the cross, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, if Jesus was lifted, is lifted up on the cross, he will draw all men to himself. And that's what's being said here, folks. So I glory in the cross. I revel in its mystery. I don't understand it. I don't understand it. But I praise God for it. I'm in all of its meaning. I'm ever praising God for his plan of redemption. I give him glory and honor that's due his name because he is so worthy. It is through the cross that I am reconciled back to God the Father. And it's because of the cross that I now have access to God the Father. Because of his cross. And what's so sad about this whole thing is men revel in their accomplishments. Men revel in their accomplishments. Watch any award show. And they revel in the awards. Look what I did. Sadly, sports. One of these really nice kids makes a great shot in the NC2A game last night, and he's running down the court going, What, what the heck? Look at the football teams. They score a touchdown. They're all that was pretty good, wasn't it? You like that? These guys are glorying in what they've done. They're glorying like they, they had some great accomplishment. And here's the crazy thing. We pay money for that. We sit in the seats and we cheer them on. I've told you before, I've never heard a college team at all. And I like the, I love the NCAA uh, basketball tournament. But not one of those college teams is yelling, we're number two, we're number two. Not one of them. Running down the court. But see, God sought to eliminate all that. He sought to eliminate all that by making our salvation a gift. He gave. For God so loved the world that he gave. It's a gift, a free gift. We did nothing to earn it. We simply believe in the work that Jesus did on the cross, and we have salvation. It's a gift. We believe. We have faith. 
And the purpose of justification by faith was to eliminate boasting. Who am I to boast in anything except what is done on the cross? If I was justified by works, then I might have some grounds for boasting. But my boasting now, my works, because of God's work. I'm not boasting in me. I'm boasting in Him and what He accomplished. There is no boasting on my part. Because of my justification is possible only through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, I have no place for boasting except in the cross of Christ. Only in the cross of Christ, and therein I boast. Not only was the Son of Man glorified, but God is glorified in Him. The twofold action of the cross. The glory of the Son and the glory of the Father. Jesus said to us, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. For the glory of God. To God be the glory. That's what should be our cry. To God be the glory. The work of Christ on the cross not only causes us to glory Him, it causes us to glory the Father, to glorify the Father, because it was His plan, a Father who loved us so much that He was willing to send His Son to make atonement for us, to do something that we couldn't do ourselves. We were helpless. We were without Christ. We were without hope. We lived in a world of debauchery. We lived in a world of sin. We were helpless. We were going to hell. Yeah, I said it. We're going to hell. Because of our sin, I said that too. But God. But God had a better plan. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. We find ourselves giving thanks and giving glory to Jesus Christ for taking the penalty that I deserved. We also thank the Father because it was His plan and He gave us His marvelous grace and his love towards us. On the cross, Jesus was glorified and God was glorified in him. And Jesus continues in verse 32. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. It was the obedience of Jesus Christ to the Father that caused the Father to glorify in him. The obedience of Jesus Christ. We're told that Christ was obedient unto death, even death on a cross. God shall also glorify him in himself. Jesus came to do what? To reveal to us the Father. Jesus came to reveal to us the Father. No man has ever seen the Father at any time, but the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath manifested him. In other words, Jesus has shown us the Father. Jesus shows us who the Father is through his character. What did Jesus manifest to us concerning the Father? His love. He manifested God's love towards us. Jesus is the epitome of love. No, take that back. He is love. He's not just an example of love. He is love. Scripture says in 1 John, God is love. How do I know that the Father loves me? How do I know that God loves me? Simple. He sent his son to die for me. Take it personal, folks. He sent his son to die for you. You are. Sure.
The Gospel of John was written from a perspective that provides an eyewitness account of what happened during the life of Jesus here on earth. Different than the other three Gospels, John's book describes Jesus in ways that confirm him as the Son of God. There are things done and said that can only point to Jesus being far more powerful than what a human could do. In the Old Testament, God referred to himself as, I am. In this book, John recounts how Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the resurrection and the life. These were bold statements, but Jesus proved throughout his ministry that they were indeed true. He lived a life that compelled people to follow at that time, to seek him out, and to commit their lives. And we can also follow him today. If you missed any part of today's teaching, or you'd like to listen to additional messages from Pastor Dave, visit assurehoperadio.com. Perhaps you were listening, you realized that you have some questions about faith, and maybe even about salvation. We'd be happy to talk with you and provide some resources to answer your questions. Give us a call at 609-884-5821. Again, that's 609-884-5821. You can also click on the Jesus tab at assurehoperadio.com. This will provide you with a succinct picture of who Jesus is and how he can change your life. Thank you again for taking the time to learn about God's word today. We hope you'll join us again next time on Assure Hope.